Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. Wow, Miriam, it's been a while since we've done this, huh? Yeah, we've been preparing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't say I was enjoying summer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, I hope you guys were enjoying your summer break. Today, we're doing something different than what we normally do, and I think you guys will enjoy it. Today, we'll talk about pearls from the Zero Bone Loss Concept book. Now, if you don't know this book, we highly recommend you go and get it because it's going to be very educational for your implant dentistry, okay? This book is written by Dr. I'm not going to butcher the name, but I think mm-hmm. I will. <laughs> Dr. Lincoln Vicious. He's Very a right. professor at the Institute of Odontology at Vilnius University in Lithuania. He finished his dental school in the year 2000, and he completed his postgraduate studies in prosthodontics at Vilnius University. Then he went on to obtain his PhD in doctoral dissertation and defended it at Riga Stradens University in Latvia. His book on zero bone loss concept is a scientifically backed clinical protocol to achieve and maintain crestal bone stability around implants. A lot of well-run clinical trials have been shared in this book, and this book does not discuss the rule of systematic factors such as smoking or uncontrolled diabetes or what have you. But it does talk about things that you can control as a clinician and the implant companies can control on implant designs, okay? So without further ado, let's dive into this book. The old standards in implant dentistry tells us that one millimeter of bone loss is normal. Now, we know that bone can have different reactions to the presence of implants, such as zero bone loss or staple remodeling, progressive bone loss or bone demineralization and remineralization corticalization, or even bone growth. The zero-bone concept, which is a term that the author coined out, is has to do with the crystal bone stability when no bone has been receded or has been lost whatsoever. So initially, when I was reading the beginning of this book, I was like, is this classic prosodontic idealistic perfectionist that, you know, this book is trying to beg? <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, But then I looked a little bit into where our current accepted concept comes from, and it's from a very old study from 1986 that talks about stable remodeling around the implant of 1.5 millimeter in one year. And it said that as long as we don't lose more than 0.2 millimeter annually after that, uh, and still maintain a 5 to 6 millimeter probing depth, with no bleeding, of course, that should be our definition of success. So that was back in 1986. And the purpose of the book has to do with reviewing everything else we know to actually achieve the result that's better. Quickly address that study. Albrechtson study was based on the initial implants back in 1986. And to be honest, we all know implant designs have come long way since 1986. It's been, what, 37 years, right? And the implants that they used to use back then, we don't use that anymore. So why are we still following the same guidelines on implant success? No, I don't think we should, right? So this book does a really good job of breaking down the points that are actually important to this day and age. 
So let's uh, let's look into it a little bit further, okay? There are some specific pearls to be taken away from our daily clinical practices, especially for cases with thin peri-implant cortical bone, short implants, or high aesthetic value. In these type of cases, the presence or absence of each millimeter of bone makes a significant difference. And as a practitioner who's been placing implants for last five years and have done thousands of implants, I'll tell you, even with ideal situation, sometimes you'll have patients come back with failed implant and you will be puzzled. So while we cannot control the patient factors, we can only educate patients on, hey, wh what are you going to do to hold on to these implants that you put so much money into? There are clinical factors that you probably can control and should try to control to get the most successful results for your own practice. I agree already. You have been putting so many implants and you can see how things could be difficult from controlling things that you think you can control to relying on patients. But talking about things that we can change, broadly speaking, there are four factors that will decide our outcome. There are surgical technique, prosthetics, biological, and mechanical. In this talk, uh, we're going to talk about factors that influence the stability of the crystal bone. So some of the concepts that we're going to talk about when it comes to implant design is platform switching, micro gap, stability of implant abutment connection, soft tissue versus bone level implants, and implants with polished neck. Another important discussion that happens in this book is a detailed emphasis on soft tissue morphology, including biotype, vertical, and horizontal thickness, amount of attached tissue, and as well as biological width. The research has shown that two important design factors in development of zero bone loss concepts are presence or absence of polished neck around the implant, or second, implant abutment connection, the micro gap. Polished neck is a definite factor in ideology of early crystal bone loss. Historically, the implant neck was manufactured with a polished surface to reduce plaque accumulation if the implant became exposed to the oral environment as a consequence of alveolar bone loss. But clinical trials studying bone levels around implant with polished collars have shown the tendency for resorption of heart tissue with, in contrast with machine surface. Hammerls and all reported that ITI implant system, which has a polished surface, did not maintain bone when the implant was restored, despite countersinking. Shane and all found similar result, concluding that implants with rough neck experience less bone loss compared with those with polished necks. And those were only two of the studies that was discussed in this section. So polished neck, you might know it as a tissue level implants, but even some of the bone level implants may have polished neck. So you need to know that based on the implant system that you're working with. Really, why don't we uh, jump a little bit ahead and talk about patho pathogenesis of bone loss? Yeah, so another study that this book talks about is a review article by Vascott and Belson. What they did was they hypothesized that machined implant surfaces cannot effectively distribute the occlusal stress between bone and smooth titanium surface. Instead, and this term is important, what we call is stress shielding is created, and that results in bone loss. What is stress shielding? Essentially, bone grows over the submerged implant as it does in two-stage surgery. If you've done enough implants, you know, you go back, you 
open the implant for your second stage and there's bone all over it and you're like oh great this was going to take five minutes and it will take me 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> but after prosthetic loading bone resorbs to the first thread of the implant in other words the bone loss from a polished collar is a non-functional bone resorption because bone resorption happens without any distribution of stress to the bone this bone likes to be stressed in order for it to be functional. And we know that. That's why, you know, elderly individuals that don't have teeth have the anatomy of class three because the bone just throws back. And, you know, you all know the resorption pattern. But really, we know crystal bone loss doesn't equal implant loss. It's an avoidable resorption that this book wants to emphasize for us to change. Yes, we know now that resorption for a tissue level implant, which usually have polished neck, ranges from anywhere from one and a half to two and a half millimeters. They had only one and a half percent early implant failure prior to loading and two percent late implant loss in nine year follow up. We all know when one patient has a complication is hundred percent in our mind. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds small <laughs> here, but it's significant. <laughs> True that. They come back all upset. Why? What happened? Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyways, meanwhile, the implant system has a polished internal connection and is polished at the horizontal plane. This polished area is shielded from the bone and therefore it poses no threat to bone stability. So, Mary, what's the main takeaway from this study? That placing your implant with polished neck at the level of a crest and not much deeper as bone will resorb to the smooth, rough surface border, regardless of the depth of implant placement. Let's look at another implant design factor now. And this one is more fun for me, I think. Would you agree, Miriam? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's more, more dynamic. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about microgap next. Okay, and this is, I think, more applicable because I don't know how many of you use a smooth surface implant. I don't usually use those. Yeah, exactly. Simply right. speaking, microgap is a junction where an implant meets the abutment. All the modern implants have a microgap then. The two-piece design allows the flexibility of the restorative dentist to have that prosthetic, prosthetic freedom to restore the implants. And that's where your multi-angle abutments come in. Having said that, though, there used to be a time that we had single-piece implants, but it doesn't mean that they are safer or experience less bone loss because their design has this critical flaw that you could only use cemented restorations. And we all know that cement itself is very irritating for the tissue. How do we know that microgap affects crystal bone stability? So Herman et al. performed a study that relates to implant above my connection and the etiology of early marginal bone loss. It's an animal study where they had 60 implants placed in five pounds. Two-piece implants had microgap sizes of, of approximately 10 microns, 50 microns, and 100 microns. And one group of implant was laser welded together, preventing any movement between the implant body and the abutment. The other group of tested implants had the same microgap size, but the abutments were connected by prosthetic screws. The results showed that all implants in non-welded group had significantly increased amounts of crestal bone loss in comparison to implants that were laser welded with the abutment. This study was instrumental in showing that micro movement 
which is the instability between implant and prosthetic abutment, can be more important for bone loss than the size of microgap. So the That's question- That's very interesting. But yeah. before we even go to the questions related to bone loss is that I didn't know what, what was hounds. And then I looked it up. <laughs> there are those cute dogs with like long ears. So I couldn't bring myself to read this study. I was like, I have to read about murder of these hounds in the name of science. <laughs> uh, anyway. Bless. Thanks. Thank you, hounds. Thank you, hounds. <laughs> The question you asked now <laughs> is, what is the relationship between the implant, but implant abutment connection and crestal bone stability? Essentially, the microgap must be viewed from two points of view, okay? One is bacterial contamination, and two is source of micro-movement. Mariam, can you entertain us on bacterial contamination in a little bit more detail, please? Let's talk about the bacterial contamination. Basically, there are several phases. We all know when we place the implants during the prosthetic phase and when if your abutment loosens because of the function, that bacteria can be pumped into the implant, can enter the implant. So let's talk about the microgap size. The size of the microgap is the difference between the implant system and the prosthetic abutments. The horizontal misfit of the implant abutment surface can range anywhere from 75 to 103 micrometer. Talking about inside, if you were going to slice the implant in half on top um, in the sagittal way, you would see the gap between the abutments and the implant. Yeah, and there's a nice picture in the book they can refer to as well. Yeah. So according to a study by Depart et al., a microgap of only 0.5 microns in a locking tapered implant system can be regarded as having a bacteria-free connection because they say that the microorganisms are larger in diameter than 0.5 microns. That was really this, cool. That was really cool. Yeah. This is another question to ask is if you're considering buying any of the new implant system in the market. So for example, yeah. Strawman has less than bacterial width, but for Neodent, it's important to work with a lab that uses authentic parts. In theory, there should be no gap bigger than 0.5 microns in order to avoid bacterial contamination. And if there's a micro gap, it would be because the abutment is not all the way seated or the lab is not using authentic parts. So make sure you talk to your lab and you both are on the same page and or even have your Neodent rep educate your lab or your staff. So after the micro gap, it comes down to another aspect of the implant and abutment connection, which is a stability. Stability has to do with the bacterial contamination because of the movement that allows bacteria to escape and damages the bone. And the movement alone, we know, is detrimental to the crystal bone. There are several connection types. There are external, flat, internal connection, but Conical connection seems to provide the best stability. This is because conical connection is the only place where the abutment is contacting the implant and stress is distributed. For Stroman, we have conical connection of 15 degrees and neodent is 16 degree more taper. And for the Stroman one, it's, a, it's the bone level implant. Yeah, it's for the bone level implant because they have many, many different implant lines. Okay, Rudy, what is the instability of implant and abutments? What does that mean? An unstable implant abutment connection during occlusal forces can lead to 
what we call the pumping effect, which is the flow of bacteria from inside the implant through the micrograph to the peri-implant tissues. And this could result into what we know, you know, inflammation and subsequently bone loss because inflammation is always bad for bone. Mm-hmm. A second theory states that abutment micro-movement itself can cause resorption of crystal bone, which is situated in close proximity. And there are several studies on this topic that have helped conclude that bone can recede up to two millimeters to maintain an appropriate distance from the source of infection. And I think this is really important, right? Yes, so that's yes. definitely the thesis sentence. Two millimeter, there are so you there's two millimeter bone loss that could be in our control. Is that's what I hear? Is that what you hear? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's two millimeters less to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the location of microgap. A study by Pietelli, Pietelli mm-hmm. et al. Mm-hmm. showed that there was no bone resorption if the microgap was located one to two millimeter above the alveolar crest and a loss of two millimeter if the microgap was at the level of alveolar crest. Mm-hmm. Now let's pause here. Mm-hmm. Above the level of alveolar crest, how many of you think about placing an implant above the bone level, even if it's a bone level implant? Exactly. Not yeah, many. This is, Not many. This is, this is great information here. You guys. Yeah. The studies shared in the micro gap section of the book all were based on animal experiments. Those beautiful hounds that died for the sake of science. Anyway, which so they don't have a very high position in the hierarchy of evidence. The takeaway from all of this is that implants with a microgap that don't have a stable implant abutment connections will lose crestal bone if they're placed at the bone level. Finally, the author performed a controlled clinical study that had two implants with matching implant abutment connection adjacent to each other, like on a lower right quadrant. The test implant was placed about two millimeters supracrystal and in a control implant was placed at the crystal level. So the, for the prosthetic, they used porcelain-fused metal and the initial healing period was two months in the mandible and four months in the maxilla. The results showed that after one year of function, the control implants, that was the placement at the level of crest with microgap placed basically at the level of bone, experienced 1.68 millimeter of bone loss. And if a if an implant was placed too deep in the bone, the bone loss will occur after restoration, even before one year follow-up in this study. So mind you, in this study, too deep was at the level of the crest. All right. Mm-hmm. I hope you guys are still with us. So we so far we talked about polished collar uh, microgap. Now the next topic we'll talk about is micro movement. So generally accepted is the smaller angle of inclination, the more stable and less resistant to lateral movements the connection will be. And that's the point I think the author is making. And that's when the Morse taper connection concept comes in, right? Which is two to four degrees of angulation. And the two implant companies that use this is Ankylos and Bicon. What Strawman and Nobel and MIS implants use has wider conical connection angulation, which is five to 20 degrees. Not that that's not acceptable. That's still an acceptable conical connection, and it's considered stable. I thought we what, said neodent also uses it. No, neodent is uh, 16 degrees, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. Third group that features angulation of 
greater than 20 degrees, which in fact is not referred to as conical connection, but it's rather flat or a flat internal connection. So we now know that the steeper the angulation of your implant abutment connection, there will be less movement and that will be good for your implant design. Platform switching is a concept that we all learn about and is very, it's one of the most famous concepts in implant dentistry. It allows for the movement of bacteria to move away from bone tissue in a horizontal direction towards the implant. We know that the platform switching works, but what I didn't know was that how much of that platform switching you need to reduce the crystal bone overloading and shift the bacterial infiltration. Dr. Canella from the School of Dentistry in Rome, Italy, did the study which concluded that the abutment needs to be 0.4 millimeter narrower than implant diameter to successfully shift the bacterial inf infiltration dive a little bit deeper into the study, I will give you the structure of it. It was a prospective clinical study that involved 69 implants in 31 patients. And Dr. Canela put a start off with implants with matching abutments and decreased it every 0.2 millimeter and measured the bone loss around it. And that's where he noticed the positive impact on bone resorption 33 months after the implant surgery was greater when the step of the platform switching was larger than 0.4 millimeter. So really, let's say for those narrow implants that we don't have a 0.4 millimeter offset, is there anything we could do to still gain the benefits of platform switching? Yeah. So let's see what the author has recommended in this book. Okay. The phrase bone level dictates that it should be placed crestally, as we talked about earlier, but then the implant micro gap will be at the bone level, which means bacteria can reside in the implant, which we don't like. Mm -hmm. These same benefits can be obtained in implants without platform switching by placing them about a millimeter supracrestally, which helps isolate the microgap, mm -hmm. summarizing what we talked about so far. But be mindful that in this case, isolation of the microgap is in vertical direction as opposed to horizontal direction in platform switched implants. Mm -hmm. So it's important that the area of horizontal shift is polished because this is where soft tissue and growth is expected. Just to summarize, the depth of every implant strictly depends on its design factor and the clinician's knowledge of it. And what, what do you feel comfortable with? Use an implant system that you're familiar with and you know will give you the results that you're looking for. This essentially summarizes the first two chapters of the book and we'll continue talking about other factors that will also influence your crestal bone stability later in this talk in our future episodes make sure you give us a five-star review if you enjoyed this talk until next time goodbye